I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. We're looking for a take two this week because I had an issue with my audio a few days ago. Hopefully this one sounds much, much better. Um, I appreciate y'all's patience with me being taking three weeks of no podcasting. Uh, I wasn't even paying attention to the news, actually. I was just relaxing. I needed some decompressed time and all I did was work and hang out with the wife and uh, got to see the parents and the kids and had a crawfish boil and you know just normal coon ass shit Um, so I do appreciate everybody's patience with me in in the time that I was away I felt it was necessary, the entire situation with the coronavirus and people's reaction to the coronavirus has been pretty stressful on me. Um, I just have taken it very, I don't know, personal, I guess. I don't even know if personal is the right word. But... I don't want to talk about that. I'm not really interested in getting into the coronavirus and any of the authoritarianism that's occurring. There are plenty of podcasters that are covering that in grave detail. What I want to talk about today is blowback. I want to talk about blowback and not in the same way that it's always been talked about. You know, since 2001, when I, I guess it was 2007 when um, Ron Paul pointed out that September 11th, 2001 was uh, related to blowback and the United States intervention in uh, the Middle East creating the tensions that had led to the attack on 9-11. Excuse me. So, it's often cited since then, the Giuliani moment, or just the term blowback, which was uh, actually a CIA term that Ron Paul had borrowed, and he was pointing out that even the CIA recognized that this was a legitimate thing, and that this was something that the United States had been aware of for many, many years, and that there was always the potential for blowback. How blowback's not normally used is domestically, on domestic issues. But you saw a a certain amount of blowback with the rising of Black Lives Matter. And you saw some people taking revenge, so to speak, upon the police for perceived wrongs in their communities. And I'm not saying that there are no wrongs. I completely <clears throat> what the way I look at it, and here's kind of how I look at it. You have a culture in 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 different communities, you have different cultures in different communities, whether it's Chinatown, um, you know, among Ashkenazis, 
uh, up in in New York City where they have their you know Jewish communities, um, whether it's um, a, a very Hispanic area like uh, Brownsville, um, <clears throat> whether it's Amish, you know, so you can see the same type of separation from the dominant, I guess you would say, quote-unquote, dominant culture in the United States when you get into poor minority neighborhoods, especially black neighborhoods. They just have a completely, they kind of have their own culture about them. They have their own way of doing things. They have their own way of talking uh, to each other. They have their own way of earning money. You know, uh, typically a lot—not typically, but a lot of them—earn money through the black market, which you know I'm perfectly fine with. And they—they um, they do not accept the authority of the police, which I would argue neither should they. That they should be able to police themselves. That the—that the. That the County police or the state police stay out of these people's communities. And I, I could even make argument to dismember county police or state police and have just cities or towns. But nevertheless, we see that there are counties and states police as well as city police. And when these police forces, even a lot of times the city police forces, you have people coming outside of the city to work within a city. And they are seen as foreign invaders, as occupiers of this region, of this community. They are occupying and dominating and ruling with an iron fist over this community. And I could argue that that vision of them is not necessarily out of, not, not even out of the ordinary, but it's not even out of line with what is actually happening. You have people coming in from outside of these communities to rule within these communities to, to force these laws down people's throats that don't want to live within the law, these laws. They don't want these laws to the, apply to them. They have no desire to live in a drug-free environment in many cases. And they have no desire to be policed in such a way that creates a drug-free environment. Now, where these communities clash is... In the 80s, many of the elderly in these communities begged law enforcement to enforce these laws on these communities. And we're seeing now, 40 plus years later, that there's this effect that has taken place that it has created these tensions and that the policing was unjust in many cases. And it's created, they call racial tension, but I think it's less racial and more cultural tension. 
within these communities. Because you would have like a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Jesse Jackson preaching that, or an Obama for that matter, preaching that the people in these, the men, especially in these communities, must pull their pants up. They must be civilized. They must adapt and assimilate to this dominant culture of respectability and and civility. But it was not their idea of respectability and civility. What gains respect within these communities? Is it the attorney or the police officer or the Wall Street advisor? Or is it the tough guy that made it on his own? That has a reputation for handling his business? In in some way, there is this code of respect, this, this code of arms that exists in more impoverished communities that is based off of somebody's warrior status, their ability to survive and to thrive despite the harsh economic conditions. And necessarily so. That's how many of these guys exist and grow up in life. You don't, you you know, when you think of ultimate basketball, you know, players, you think of somebody like a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan. But what did they have that that put them head and shoulders above the rest? Is they had this cutthroat, no nonsense, enemy deserves no mercy mentality about them. And that if you stepped on their toes or you got in their way, they were going to destroy you. And in many cases, that is the culture of these communities. It's that that warrior culture, that code of honor that has existed for thousands of years throughout the world. And when you try to force a people to accept a culture or a lifestyle that is foreign to them, no matter how far away it travels, whether it travels thousands of miles to attempt to quote-unquote westernize the Middle East, or it travels five miles in an attempt to westernize the third ward. You get pushback. You're going to experience pushback. And the harder you police these people, whether it's militarizing Kabul or Mosul or militarizing 
Minneapolis, if you see where I'm going, you're you're going to get pushback. And the harder that you militarize and that you police these people, as you saw with the American Revolution, the more pushback and blowback you receive. So what we're seeing around the country right now, though the death of George Floyd may have been the straw that broke the camel's back this year, it's not a new phenomenon. You had the Black Lives Matter movement in what, 2012, 13, whenever that was. You had the, the riots around the Rodney King killing was that the 90s which directly led to the O.J. Simpson trial turning into the debacle it was and so you see these things happen over periods of time the distrust and the, dis, the, the, the unrest just grows. And it settles down and then it boils back over and it settles down and it boils back over. It's kind of like the boom-bust cycle, though. It's created by the institution or the institutions that claim to manage it. And so when you have a gentleman like George Floyd... And I call him a gentleman because what I've heard of him, I don't know him personally. I've never met him. He was originally from Houston. Grew up in the third ward. Moved to Minneapolis. He was 46 years old. He was known as a pretty peaceful guy. And the, the circumstances surrounding his death... Number one, the police were called due to this store receiving a counterfeit, quote unquote counterfeit, which all money's counterfeit, $20 bill. Apparently, he was pointed out as the primary suspect and he was sitting in his car they thought he was drunk or high or something so they approached him and told him to get out of his car video shows him on the sidewalk and they're confronting him and it looks like he's kind of like man just get away from me type deal And then the next video you see, he's he has been pushed to the ground, and a police officer, while he's handcuffed, pins him down by compressing his left knee across his neck. And while, in Eric Garner fashion, he tells the police, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, please don't kill me, I can't breathe. 
this officer refuses to get off his neck, even when he's handcuffed. Now, this goes on for six minutes before EMS shows up. People in the background are heard asking the police to get off of him and check for a pulse because he's gone completely limp. When EMS gets there, they declare him dead as they arrive on the scene. And the police officer didn't get off of him, like I said, for about six minutes. He's kneeling on his neck and refuses to move until EMS shows up. In no way, shape, or form do I see the potential for the argument that the police officer feared for his life while he was handcuffed. Even, as surprising as I kind of found it, Dan Bongino, a former New York police officer and Secret Service officer, has condemned the actions of the police officer. And not only that one police officer, but the police officers that stood around and watched as the life, the life went out of this man due to the actions of this police officer that has been fired, as well as the other three have been fired. Now, the mayor is calling for the arrest of this officer and charges to be brought up on this officer. Which I respect that. I think that's the right thing to do. Whether or not the county attorney um, listens to this request is to be seen. But after the murder of the young lady in her home, the EMS worker that was going to school to be a nurse, in her home, in her bed... After the murder of, I want to say it's Ahmad Ahmoud Arbery in Georgia, and even the connections those guys had to the police force, one of them being a retired officer and uh, investigator for the DA's office, and the years and years of destroying lives within these cities. No matter the color of the people, but because they don't adhere to the standards of the dominant culture or what people think should be the dominant culture, because they don't see any difference between them counterfeiting money and the federal government counterfeiting money? I mean, really, if Chase Bank can print trillions of dollars in order to enrich themselves, why can't George Floyd print $20 to buy diapers or food for his two daughters at home? I mean, really, what's the difference? I guess because Chase Bank CEO is going to go out and buy a yacht. Going to run around in the Epstein circle of people. Those criminals that are, that adhere to the dominant culture, that accept the dominant culture, as opposed to those 
nonviolent offenders of the state, those people that refuse to accept the authority that rules over them, that occupies them, that occupies their territory. And I'm not excluded from looking at life that way. I drive into the little town right outside of where I live, the little town of, of Mauriceville, Texas, that doesn't have a police force. And I see a state trooper or an Orange County cop sitting there. And I get pissed off. I'm like, what are you, what are you usurpers doing here? You don't belong here. And so the fact that George Floyd possibly, potentially, in, introduced $20 into the economy that didn't belong there is a crime worthy of being choked to death while handcuffed in the eyes of the law. Yet no one is choking the Rockefellers or the CEO of Chase Bank or Ben Bernanke to death for the introduction of trillions of dollars that do not belong in the economy, that are going to have a negative effect of the George Floyds of the world while enriching the rich. They don't get choked to death. And then you hear these people complain and bitch and moan and groan about the riots about the burning and the looting of a city, it's blowback. That, that is warfare within Minneapolis. These people have declared war on the city of Minneapolis. And they are going to do everything within their power to get influential people within the city to back them up. And if they have to burn an O'Reilly auto parts store or a high-low or whatever it was and an auto zone, whatever, in order to get the CEO of that corporation to put pressure on the city to reduce the violence against their community, they're going to do it. No matter how I feel about it, no matter if I think it's the right way to handle it. And maybe that's not even what's going through their mind. But a lot of times, that's the result. The result is that you put pressure on these Corporations, on these organizations, on these institutions, through means of that nature. But make no mistake, it's no less blowback than the attacks on the Twin Towers. That it's no less blowback than the shooting in Florida at the nightclub. 
It's no less blowback than the Boston Marathon bombers. That it is blowback. It is domestic. And it is happening within the communities. But it is blowback nonetheless. These people are desperate to be justly treated as free individuals. Because culturally, they sit outside of what the mainstream thinks they should be. They stand outside of the political consensus as they should act and grow and prosper within their communities. They're not adhering to the dominant culture. They do not accept this dominant culture. They instead have their own culture and class of people that prosper in their own way. And they should be left alone to live their lives and police themselves. Otherwise, we are going to keep seeing this cultural boom-bust cycle occur. It will never stop. The occupation and militarization of their communities is not going to help. It has not helped, and it will not help. It will only lead to further confrontation. And then it will lead to further militarization. And as these police officers become more and more violent towards the civilian population, calling them insurgents, as I have seen, saying, well, you should just obey. Well, how about no means no. Leave me alone means leave me alone. I'm innocent until proven guilty. So if you can't prove that I'm guilty, get the fuck away from me. How about that? How about that for an answer? That I'm a free man, innocent until proven guilty. And until you have sufficient evidence to prove that I'm guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt, leave me alone. And that's how it should be. Now, I had often said that these police officers, in order to better associate themselves with the communities, to create less tension within the communities, they should take the Andy Griffith approach and become part of the community and interact with the community at a friendly level. Get to know the business owners. Get to know the people that are running the streets. Get to know the people within the communities. And I've changed my tune to the degree that I don't believe they belong there at all. Let these people 
police themselves, create their own forces within their community, govern themselves as free individuals should govern themselves. Leave them to their devices. Stay out of their areas. Stay out of their communities. Let them run their own businesses. Let them be free people that enjoy their own culture, their own lifestyles, create their own laws within these communities, decentralized, completely and totally sovereign. And reduce the amount of violence and the amount of friction, the occupation and the militarization of these communities. And these domestic wars against the poor, the over-policing of them must stop. And that they should be left to enjoy their freedoms and see their communities prosper and not be victimized or demonized or obscured in any way from outer forces that the white liberal savior that knows better. I know. I'm, I'm going to go in there and we're going to save these people. The worst people in the world. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And these white liberal saviors should all be removed from office. They should all be thrown out into the cold. If by now you can't see through their good intentions, the bad results that occur to their good intentions, you probably deserve them. And you go live under their rule. But quit forcing their rule upon communities that have no desire to adhere to their rules or their laws or your ideals. You don't want... You wouldn't want the black communities, you wouldn't want the George Floyds coming into your community, telling you how to live your life, setting the laws and provisions and rules over your community and policing it as such with his gang of thugs. Why do you send your gang of thugs into their communities? Leave the people alone. Let them live their lives. It's the land of the free, right? But you would have no such thing. And the good thing in this pandemic, all the looters that are acting, all the actors that are being violent towards your laws and your rules and your culture, and your provisions have to wear masks because you told them to. So you don't even know who these people are. Good job, white liberal savior. 
That is the, that you you really set yourself up for failure this time. Anyway, I'm tired of talking to you now. So Boogie's going crazy too. He's eating me. So that be that. I'm glad I could get an episode together again. Hopefully it sounds better. Sorry I took some time off, but I needed some time off. It was for all of our goods. I promise you. Anyway, I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.